much on uh, previously uh, and on the lead up to this. So I, I want to talk to us about really about the, the east position of the gate of the tabernacle because it's very important in, in the temple particularly um, because you know if you if you may you may or may not have heard me when I'm talking about the Mount of Olives um, and and if for those that were in it went to Israel we walked down the Mount of Olives didn't we with the scene of the triumphal entry and the Mount of Olives is 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 we call it sometimes the heavenly runway because it's the place or the presence of God we're going to see departs and it's also the place where the Lord came down the triumphal entry um, it's the place the Mount of Olives is the place where the Lord left and ascended and ultimately he's coming back to the Mount of Olives so and I wanted to talk about that 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 eastern aspect because the tabernacle is positioned with the gate to the east and that is a pattern that is followed especially when you get to the temple and it looks upon um, the Mount of Olives. So, with that said, I want you to turn to Ezekiel chapter 11. I'm going to get you um, just to go through some scriptures uh, tonight and have a look. So, Ezekiel chapter number 11. <clears throat> Ezekiel chapter 11, and verse number 23, first of all. Ezekiel 11, verse 23, says this, And the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city, obviously in context, the city's Jerusalem, stood upon the mountain which is on the east side of the city. Uh, so here Ezekiel has a vision of the glory of the Lord departing the temple and of course this is synonymous with Israel's fall into their idolatry you know and the Ichabod is written over the temple Ichabod meaning the glory has departed so you have this vision that Ezekiel says this uh, the city Jerusalem pointing to the east the mount on the east which is the Mount of Olives. You can go there today. This is not made up. This is a factual place. So it's Jerusalem. It's a Mount of Olives. So if you then fast forward a little bit into chapter 43 of Ezekiel. At some point down the line, get to Ezekiel chapter 43, right at the very start there, verse 1. At some point, we're going to Go through the book of Ezekiel at some point. That's going to be fun. I'm going to tell you that now. But at some point we're going to do it. We're going to do it. Because the book of Ezekiel is where, where no man will go in Stoke-on-Trent pretty much. But we'll go there. Uh, we'll absolutely go there because there's so much in it. Right. Ezekiel 43 verse number 1. Afterward he brought me to the gate, even to the gate that looked towards the east. And behold the glory of uh, the God of Israel came from the way of the east, and his voice was like a noise of many waters, and the earth shined with his glory. And it was according to the appearance of the vision which I saw, even according to the vision that I saw when I came to destroy the city, and the visions were like the visions that I saw by the river Chebar, and I fell upon my face. And the glory of the Lord came into the house by the way of the east, or the gate, the gate, whose prospect is towards the east. So notice that Ezekiel has this vision of the glory of the Lord, not departing, but what? 
returning, returning. And what way does it return? Through the east, through the east gate. Same way that it departed. Now turn to Acts chapter number 1. Acts chapter number 1, verse 11. Acts 1, verse 11. You hear the ascension. It says, Which also said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as you have seen him go into heaven. Then they returned unto Jerusalem from where? The mount called Olivet, which is from Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey. Matthew 24, turn there please. Matthew chapter 24. Matthew 24. Matthew 24 is what we call the Olivet Discourse. And ironically, you know, it's not irony really, it's, it's, it's divine providence that this great sermon, whatever you want to call it, given in the Mount of Olives, is about the return of the Lord. It's not about church life now. Don't, do you get so mistaken? This is a passage in scripture that talks about the return of the Lord, the tribulation and the return of the Lord. And that helps iron out so much stuff in there. But anyway, verse 27, thinking about the return of the Lord, it says this, For as the lightning coming out of the east and, uh, and shineth even unto the west, so shall also be the coming of the man, coming of the Son of Man be. So there, there, are many, there are many others I can look at. But what I'm showing you here is that the, the east gate was the gate which the glory of the Lord departed. And when you get to the temple, and it's up the Mount of Olives and away to heaven. This is why Jesus comes down the Mount of Olives in the triumphal entry to the east gate. Because it is the glory of the Lord coming back. It is him. Of course, he's rejected. We know that. And there's prophecy in Ezekiel are about, about something, something else. So this east gate is very important. The tabernacle, when it's set, its gate is towards the east. It's, it's picturing and showing what this is all going to be. And uh, so let me, let me show you this. So here we go. Let's, let's bring you to Israel. Who thought that we're going to Israel tonight? Nobody? Well, there you go. Here we are. Save you the money. So that... Gate there, so you know many different gates around, and of course time has done things to them. But this is the eastern gate. You can see that today from the Mount of Olives. It's the only entrance from the east. So when you get to the other gates, there's 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 gates that are surrounded. The only entrance from the gate is this eastern gate, faces the Mount of Olives. Now the eastern gate was destroyed. AD seventy with the Roman conquest. You know, it's the same thing. If you go, to, if you ever go to Israel, you'll not do the Via Della Rosa. If I'm leading you, because the Via Della Rosa that you people walk on today was non-existent then. It's been built upon, built upon, racked, moved, stations of the cross. You're not doing that. If you go with me, just to tell you, we're going to get rid of all that that rubbish. This this gate is not the original Eastern Gate. It's been broken down. You know, 
Uh, but prior to AD 70, now this is important, this little detail. So prior to AD 70, before the Romans came in and, and, and ransacked and wrecked and, and pulled the temple down and destroyed it, destroyed. Before that period, this gate, Eastern Gate, when it was up, had never been seen. It was open, always open. Um, sometimes, so you get, after AD 70, it's wrecked, done. You get a little bit later on in history, the Byzantine era, um, and it's rebuilt. Later on in, in history, going down, so it's rebuilt by the, the Byzantines, Byzantines. Later on in, in history, you get to an Ottoman ruler called Sultan Suleiman, and he seals the Eastern Gate. So it's been rebuilt, yes, but in the, in the roughly the position where the original Eastern Gate was, bearing in mind it's a lot higher, because building upon building upon building. Like if you, if you um, imagine like uh, Jerusalem, and Jerusalem's been ransacked over the years, but certainly, but certainly in 8070 at least, let's go there. You know, everyone's pulled down. And then you go and you want to build on it. You build on top of it. That's what happens a lot of the time. You don't get the excavators in and, uh, you know, the mechanical, that just, just use what's there and use it as foundation, build on top of it, and that's what happened. But, so that, but the gate is in the possession of the east. So this uh, Ottoman ruler comes along and he, uh, built, he blocks it up. So this here, the gate blocked up, was blocked up in 15th, 16th century, around there, 1541, 16th century, by this Ottoman ruler. Now, historians disagree as to why he's done this. They can't really put it down. But there are legends, you know, theories, shall we say, better than legends, that he did this because he was aware of some of the prophecies of the returning Messiah tied in specifically with the Eastern Gate. And of course, uh, being Ottoman, he wasn't really keen on any kind of Messiah because remember in world concept, the, the Messiah is, is, is not just any man. He's, 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 he's to their eyes for a lot of them. Even in Islam, you can look for their Messiah coming. It, it's, it's almost this thing that they'll take us Whatever, whatever you know, religion it is, whatever nation it is, and they'll be the captain, the leader, and we'll prosper off the back of that. This mighty, that's why the Jews couldn't get on with the Jesus that was presented. They wanted a, a military ruler, someone of strength. And of course, we know Jesus had strength, but it wasn't what they were looking for. But Solomon, uh, Solomon, Sultan Solomon, whatever, whatever reason he did it for, he blocked up the Eastern Gate. And the Eastern Gate from then till now has sat like that. Blocked up, not used. You think, well, why does this matter? We're here to talk about the tabernacle. Well, turn to Ezekiel chapter 44. Ezekiel 44, and look at verse number 1. I'm going to read the verse number 3. Ezekiel 44 verse 1 says, Then he brought me back the way of the gate of the outward sanctuary, but looketh towards the east. Right? So eastern gate. Notice these words. And it was shut. Then the Lord said unto me, This gate shall be shut. It shall not be opened. And no man shall enter in by it, because the Lord God of Israel hath entered in by it. Therefore, it shall be shut. It is for the prince. The prince, he shall sit on it. 
to eat bread before the Lord, he shall enter by the way of the porch of that gate and shall go out by the way of the same. So now you have this passage written by Ezekiel that talks about the eastern gate being shut. Shut to the point that the one that would open the eastern gate would be Messiah. So Ezekiel writing way before this. Now again this gate was destroyed, it was built and it was open. And then not a Jew, not a Christian, somebody disconnected from that, that's important because God does that. He uses people that have, excuse my phraseology, no skin in the game. And he uses them mightily. You see this in the incarnation with Joseph and Mary. It's a, they have to go and be numbered, don't they? Nothing to do with any Jew. Nobody trying to, Jew trying to prove prophecy. This guy came in and he shut this gate. You know, so for over, over uh, many years after 870, you know, it's, it's built again. But then it's shut up for four or five hundred years now. It's lay that way. Again, the prophecy from Ezekiel is that it will be shut and no man would open it. So for hundreds of years, this eastern gate has been shut and has remained shut. Now, I want to say this also. You can look at this yourself and, and have a look at this. There has been numerous attempts to try and get this gate open. Numerous attempts. And for some reason, we say some reason, it's never been able to happen. What is this? Ah, this is prophecy to me. This is prophecy to me. And the other interesting thing there you can probably see here is that the uh, Muslims that are more convinced about prophecy than we are, not only the gate has been shut and God has used them to do that, but they've put graveyards in front of it because they've read of the prophecies of the Messiah of the Jew coming back down the Mount of Olives and through the Eastern Gate. So they've put a graveyard there in front of the Eastern Gate. Why do you think they've put a graveyard there? Right, because in their reasoning, if he's a Jewish Messiah, he's he's a Jewish high priest, really, that he's not going to defile himself with their bodies because, you know, it's Levitical law. So in their cleverness, they're like, well, we'll cover this. Now, you read about these prophecies being fulfilled when the Lord returns. There's something happens to the topology in uh, Jerusalem and things change a little bit. So the Lord's got that under control. Don't worry about that. But the details of the tabernacle faced in the east and how that it was a pattern that was set from heaven and then was passed down in the temple designs and how in Jerusalem, the city that carried God's name, where it's placed, the east is the Mount of Olives. You see this connection with the heavenly runway where the Shekinah glory, the glory of God, comes down, rests in the temple, fills the temple in the holy of holy place. Then Israel, through idolatry over the years, it departs, it departs, 
up the, the Mount of Olives in a way, same as the Lord Jesus did. You know, he is the glory of God. And as those uh, early disciples stand on the Mount of Olives, and you can go and stand there today, which is pretty amazing, you stand in that place where they stood in the book of Acts and marveled as the Lord ascended, and they were told, don't worry, the Lord will come back in the same manner. And you get into Zechariah, you get into Ezekiel, you get into the other Old Testament passages, and you can see those prophecies that are unfulfilled that talk about the Lord's return where to the Mount of Olives where does he go from that well he doesn't even touch the Mount of Olives he deals with the armies that are attacking Israel God's people and then ultimately he comes back and he comes down the Mount of Olives and he goes through that gate in to Jerusalem to the rebuilt uh, temple amazing amazing stuff so I wanted to just touch on the on the on the eastern side of it before we get into tonight's message because I don't think we've done enough for that so, right, now we can start. There's 20 minutes gone, goodness me. Right, are you, are you, you, got, pack, you got dinner with you, you got a drink? We're going to be here for a while. That's all right. Um, <laughs> we're going to get to the next piece of furniture. We already looked at this piece, right? That was the, the, the altar. Remember the place of sacrifice. Now we're going to move. So turn to Exodus if you have your Bibles and you want to look at it. I will read it to you. But Exodus chapter 30. And verse 17. I'm going to be looking at the brazen or brass laver. And here's the instructions for it. Exodus 30, verse 17. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Thou shalt make a laver of brass, and his foot also of brass, to wash withal. Thou shalt put it between the tabernacle of the congregation and the altar. So this is a position. And thou shalt put water in it. For Aaron and his sons shall wash their hands and their feet thereat when they go into the tabernacle of the congregation. They shall wash with water that they die not. Or when they come near the altar to minister, to burn offering made by fire unto the Lord, so they shall wash their hands and their feet, that they die not. And it shall be a statute forever to them, even to him and to his seed throughout their generations. So, we're going to have a look at the, the labor. And here's the first thing we're going to have a look at. I'm going to have a look at the setting, you know, what's going on there. So, in our minds, we want to picture the priest, and we want to picture how the priest has, has dealt with the sacrifice, the animal has been slaughtered, all the blood and everything around that takes place at the altar. The slaughter, the, the offering, the burning of it, remember the fire burned continually, there's a lot of offerings going on in, in Levitical law. And again, we talked about how that just brings the, the severity of sin, you know, the, it, the solemnness of sacrifice but now we we want to move on because the the priest that's offered these sacrifices well guess what he's covered in the the filth but the 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 products of what he's doing as he's sacrificing these animals right and again sand you've been there dusty again this is the feet washing thing that we looked at on wednesday there's a practical thing for it so the priest you know he's he he he's uh, got his dirty clothes on if you like because he's because although they're doing it in a very ritualized way this is not chaotic nothing that the jews did in levitical law was chaotic 
and the, the animals were sacrificed in in a, in a not in a barbaric way, but in a in a very merciful way. They knew what they were doing. They were surging. But yet there, there would have been blood splatter, all that type of thing. So the priest, as he moves from the altar of sacrifice, he now needs to move to the place of, of purification. This is the place where he had to uh, come clean. And so, you know, he'd been thinking about what Moses had relayed. And, and cer- certainly uh, later on, as you get into the temple area, you know, because you've got the same elements same pieces of furniture during the temple. They'd be looking back at the Torah. They would know what um, you know was written in the law of Moses. They'd know verse 20 of Exodus 30, that when they go into the tabernacle of the congregation, they shall wash with water that they die not. And they may come near the altar to minister, to burn offering made by fire to the Lord. So shall they wash their hands and their feet that they die not. So this purity, this cleanliness, that was expected of the priest was well known. Water and purification was a was a well known part of the priesthood. When they came to the even to the tabernacle, when they came for service, they had to be washed. You get to the temple itself, and you'll see that there's different ways to come in. And the priest would come in over the bridge, which leads to the western wall. And first of all, they would go into a mikvah, which is a, a Jewish ritual bath. This is where we get baptism from, where running water would flow into. And uh, they would get baptized, they would immerse themselves just for the cleanliness, this picture of coming into the, the service of God's of God, sorry. So the priest was to wash thoroughly. You know, Aaron knew it, Exodus twenty nine, verse four, you don't have to turn there, reads this Aaron and his sons shall bring unto the door of the tabernacle of the congregation and shall wash them with water. So there's this ritual washing in Judaism that's present. Here, the high priest had to wash on the day of atonement. Leviticus chapter 16, verse 24 reads this. Talking about the day of atonement and the high priest. says, he shall wash his flesh with water in the holy place, put on his garments and come forth and offer his burnt offering. And the burnt offering of the people to make atonement for himself and uh, for the people. So the, 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 the ritual washing is part of Judaism. For the priests themselves that are running about inside the tabernacle, they've, they've already done their ritual washing as they come outside, but when they get into the tabernacle, the daily practice was they had to wash their hands and their feet. These were the things that, that got the dirtiest. So the hands and the feet had to be washed. So the setting of this shouldn't be lost on you because as God gives the design to Moses, he said, this is, this is the gate, the eastern gate, this is the way you come in. There's no other way in, it's surrounded by that perimeter. The first thing is the altar where the sacrifices are made. But then between the altar of sacrifice and then this place, the tent itself, the holy place, this is where you get into the fellowship with God and start to walk with him, there has to be purification that takes place. The laver is placed strategically there so that they would come after being at the altar, they would wash their hands and their feet before they would enter into the holy place. So the, the picture then is really this progress, but it's, it's dealing with this progress of how sin is dealt with as we enter into the presence of God. See, sin being atoned for at the altar made it possible for them to go towards God. They couldn't go any further without that atonement of sin. 
But then they had to wash themselves of that which defiled their bodies from entering the holy place. So, what I'm saying to you, they had to be spiritually and physically clean, as it were. And the water provided that means of physical uh, cleansing. It was a place uh, placed after the altar for a reason. So, what I'm saying to you is the setting of this altar, prison, or labor, sorry, this bowl, big basin of water, really, isn't just random. Because the tabernacle is showing something. It's a picture and a type. Remember John 14, 6, every time you look at this. I am the way, truth, life. That's the three breakdowns. No man comes unto the Father but by me. I am the way, the gate, place of sacrifice truth is the next section and now we're going to see why this is important but let's have a look at the structure of the labor uh, exodus again chapter 30 uh, verse 18 exodus 30 verse 18 they shall make a laver of brass foot of brass to wash with all they shall put it between the tabernacle of the congregation and the altar and they shall put water uh, in it. So the laver is made of two parts. Uh, uh, the base, the foot, the stand if you like, and then the big basin in which the, the water was filled. Now the interesting thing about this is that there's no measurements given. Whereas when you read the other pieces of furniture, there's measurements. You've heard me talking about the fives and the fours and all that. You're not going to get that in, in this. There's, there's no uh, measurement of it. Uh, if you go to chapter 38 of Exodus, it gives a little bit more detail about it. Chapter 38 and verse number 8. Chapter 38 and verse number 8. Here we're told a little bit more detail. And he made the laver of brass, so this is this, or bronze. And the foot of it brass of the looking glasses of the woman, women assembling, which assembled at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. So what is this made of? It's made of the mirrors. I know, I know how that sounds. Mirror, when I say mirror as a Northern Irish person, it's very different to how you pleasant English people say mirror. But I say mirror. So it, it sounds like one of the gifts that the wise men brought, right? Mirror. But that's what they, they built, built it with. Because a mirror then was just polished metal. That's what they were doing. So when, when the, uh, the um, Jews come out of Egypt, they bring spoils with them. And some of this was the mirrors. And they were took, obviously, molded down, and then shaped and formed. So what I'm, what I'm saying here is that this structure there's no measurements given to it but what we do know that it was a very reflective basin surface you have the water in it but at the bottom of it it was what was a mirror and of course a mirror is is what's used to reflect on so that's all we know really about the labor in terms of its measurements we know that it was made of a brass or bronze Uh, we know that it was highly reflective because of of what it was uh, made from etc and we know that it held water so what does that all symbolize you know what what's what's going on here is there anything that we can pick out pull out and have a look at and 
I think there is. So the immediate contrast between the, the first piece of furniture that we, we, we saw when we came in the tabernacle was that it was full of fire. We come to the uh, laver and it's full of water. And, and, and there's really, the contrast that, that's happening here is that the altar is the place of um, justification, theologically speaking. That your justification, you know, your sins dealt with, the penalty of sin, this legal sense that you're in a right standing with God. That's what justification is. Is that when you're saved, God declares you righteous in Christ. There's a transaction that takes place. There's a, it, it, there's a legality to this, that you are uh, free, paid in full, tellingly, it's done. That, that's justification. And God will never, ever pour the penalty from a judicial sense of sin upon you again. It's, it's dealt with, it's done. This is eternal security. So, you know, you get saved, the imputed righteousness of Christ, Christ's life for yours, the great transaction, you're justified. You know, we say this, and, you know, kind of tongue in cheek, just as if I'd never sinned. But it's, it's this legal standing, right? The, the penalty for sin is dealt with, it's done. It can't be redone, it can't be redealt with from a judicial sense, right? So the born-again believer, if they're saved by grace, truly born again of the Spirit, they can do some horrendous things in life and they'll never stand before God for the penalty of sin judicially. They'll never face hell. Because that's done and dusted. Justification's done. But the altar that has water in it doesn't speak about justification. It speaks about sanctification. And, and that's the stage that we live in. So sanctification is three tenses. Sanctification, I talked about this morning, being set apart for God. So you're justified, that's your salvation. But sanctification is more to do with your election than anything else. This position of service and privilege that you're set apart from. The three tenses are you were sanctified when you were saved, set apart by God. You are being sanctified now as you walk in him. And ultimately you'll be fully sanctified whenever you reach the adoption of the glorified body. But the, so the altar deals with the penalty of sin, but this labor, sanctification, it doesn't deal with the penalty of sin in our life. It deals with the practice of sin, because that is the problem. That as believers will never, ever, I, honestly, I can't stress this enough, as believers we will never, ever face that penalty from a, 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 a legal pouring of God's wrath for entirety of our sin. That's done. That, that's the beauty of our faith. But the practice of sin is a problem for all of us. All of us. And we deal with this on a day and daily basis. But that is not the same as the penalty of sin. There are different things. We've moved on from that. So never ever, if you're truly born again, ever get to the place where you're doubting that God would save you. It's done. It's done. The penalty's paid for. But the practice is a real problem. So the, the, the altar is about, the, the brazen altar is about the convicted sinner. This next part, the, 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 the labor, the washing of, of the water, is about the consecrated saint. And the, we are all at this 
have to go to the laver. We all have to be washed and cleansed. You know, we're not without sin because here's the thing. Now we're priests, right? You're born again. You're, you're now a royal priesthood. You're born into that, 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 that priesthood and you can come to God now. You don't have to go to the altar. You don't need to offer another sacrifice. Why? Sacrifice has been offered once for all forever. Hebrews. So that's done. But that doesn't mean that you don't deal with the practice of sin. That doesn't mean that your hands and your feet don't get dirty as you walk in this world. They do. And it needs to be dealt with. You see, the priesthood of the believer is a beautiful doctrine, but it comes with responsibilities. You've got direct access to God. We don't need a human mediator. We've got the right to sacrifice. Remember in the Old Testament, if you weren't part of that priestly family and you offered sacrifice of yourself, that was strange fire. You paid for that with death because you had no right to offer sacrifice to be the priest's family. But now we're part of this royal priesthood. We have the right of sacrifice. If we didn't have the right of sacrifice, Paul couldn't write Romans 12.1. I beseech you, brethren, therefore, by the mercies of God, that what? You present your bodies a living sacrifice. It's a priesthood reflection that you are a priest now. That you can come to God. That you offer for this sacrifice of praise. You know that, that, that sacrifice of praise, if you weren't a priest, you couldn't come into the holy place. We'll look at this when we get there. And all, all, go to the altar of incense and offer that sacrifice of praise in the holy place. You can do it. You can now. You're praised. So as believers, we have a new position. And that's dealt with at Calvary's cross. Right? This justified our new position into our election as, as a royal priesthood. And the privileges that come with it. That God just doesn't save you and spare you from wrath. Which is more than we deserve. He now says, do you know, I'm, I'm going to do more for you. And the more that I'm going to do, you're going to be a, a part of the royal priesthood. That you're going to be a co-heir with me. That you have now a position of privilege and you can walk in that. So there's a positional change. And, and glory to God, hallelujah for that. He has given us more than we can ever imagine. Honestly, our promises would blow a Jewish person of that uh, generation. If they could be faced with Christ and know the truth away. The Gentiles would be offered this. It's mental. It's mental. So we've got this new position, but what's the problem then? The problem is sin is still there. And even though we're a priesthood, even though we can move from the altar to the, the next station, if you like, we still sin. Think, what is, what is sin? Greatest definition of sin is the children's one. Anything you think, say, or do that doesn't please God. And at that point, we say, if you were to mark iniquities, O Lord, who would stand? But there's forgiveness with thee. Forgiveness. So we're dealing with sin. You know, and, and we live in this life where we can now not have the ability to be sinless, but we want to sin less. That we want to grow in our faith. And, and there's times that we need to be washed. And uh, just be aware of the presence of sin and know that there's something in our lives that's 
dirty in us, that's muddy in us, that we need to go to God and ask for forgiveness for. Not because we were doubting our salvation, not because we're asking us to forgive us and save us again, but now we're saying, well, our fellowship with God is not right. Our relationship is secure. Penalty of sin is dealt with, but the practice of sin is affecting our relationship, and now I need some to do something about that. And just like we couldn't deal with the penalty of sin, we can't deal with the practice of sin ourselves. We have to go to God. And as you grow in the Christian faith, you become more sensitive to your sin. And actually, you don't walk away from Calvary's cross thinking, right, I've got rid of the big sins in my life. I'm, I'm done now. I'm finished. I'm all right. And when I got saved, I thought, well, I'm not. I don't want to say too much on, on my recording. I, I, you know, I, I wasn't being a naughty boy. So I'm all right. I'm not doing all these big sins. But actually, as you grow in Christ, he reveals to you more of, of what sin really is. And actually, you're dealing with the big things, but God's seeing these little things. And, and as, as you grow, he starts to show them. I've told this story before that I was in the, in the co-op up there one time. And I was in the queue, because apparently that co-op has queues sometimes. So I'm in that, before the self-con as well, I believe. So waiting to, waiting to queue to get to the counter. And I was buying some little things. And I had a hoodie on, hands in my pockets in the hoodie. And I had some stuff in my hand. And I put my, my hands in my pocket. And I had like a Kit Kat or something. And uh, I put it in the hoodie pocket. And then by the time I got to the queue, three days later, I was able to put my stuff there, paid for it, went out, started walking back to the church, and then realized that I'd got a Kit Kat in my pocket. I know. Shame on me. Shame on me. Shame on me. But here's the thing, you know, I've been growing in my Christian faith there. In the early days, I just walked away. A Kit Kat, I mean, what? A Kit Kat. But I'm walking down and going, I need to take this back. Take it back. Like, you know, some of the stuff I've involved in, a Kit Kat is is a tip of the iceberg, it's nothing. And I wasn't, I walked away from them and slept like a baby. Kit Kat! Couldn't do it. Holy Spirit! Showing you. You think sin's all these big things. No, there's so much going on in there. This is why we need to be cleansed no matter who we are, where we are, how far on our journey with God, we need this place of purification because we get our spiritual hands and our feet dirty in the world. It just happens. So we have to go to the laver, and the laver is a beautiful symbol of the word of God. It's this place of washing. And of course in scripture if you know. It's the washing of the water of the word. We're going to have a look at that in Ephesians 5. Next time we're there. This beautiful place of of cleansing. And here's the thing that I want you to see. This is so important. When you're dealing with somebody else. You're you're leading them to the Lord. You're showing them about Christ. That our, our God. Biblical Christianity. The God that we worship. The Lord that we worship. Is different from the world. Because here's what happens in the world. You have to wash yourself, you have to cleanse yourself to make yourself ready to be in that place where you offer yourself to that God or that deity. In Christian church we do the same thing at times I think. Where we expect people to be clean before they come to the place of sacrifice. 
Like you want to be a Christian, you need to clean your life up first. That's the mentality out there. And sometimes it's the mentality in here. But that's not the order. Is that we come to the place, the altar of sacrifice. We ask God to save us. And then we move to the place of sanctification where we get clean. God has to do the cleansing. And he doesn't do the cleansing until you're one of his children. Enough. We don't operate in a works-based system. We simply come and we cry out to the God of all creation to save us. Knowing that we can't do it ourselves. And then he does. And then guess what? The Holy Spirit and the word of God start to do the cleansing. Ephesians 5.25 reads, Husband, love your wives, even as Christ loved the church, gave himself for it that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. John 17.17, 17, the great high priestly prayer, sanctify them through thy truth, thy word is truth. So the picture of water and the word are, are messed together, the sanctification that the word, the water of life provides. Remember the, the priest that, that came, he would wash his hands and his feet. What's that pictorial of? It's our, our walk with God and then our Actions for God. So the stuff we talked about this morning. Get your walk right. How do you get your walk right? You got to confess your sin. You're going to be washed by the water of the word. You see the priest knew if they didn't do this. The warnings were that they would die. They'd be separated off. So it doesn't matter whether it's preacher, teacher, hearer. Helper, we cannot do ministry because we're all involved in ministry. Why? Because we're all priests. We cannot do it with dirty hands and dirty feet. We have to be washed. And this is what the labor represents. It's pictorial of the washing that's required as we come into the presence of God. This is the tent. We do this once, it's done. Calvary's cross. We move to the basin where we're washed just like the priests had to wash themselves as we continually understand that we live in a world where we're going to get muddied, we're going to get marred. Some of the dirt is the world flinging it at us. Some of the dirt is us picking the, the stuff of the world up. But we need to be cleansed. Turn to John, 1 John, chapter number 1. This is... Christian A&E. This is the lever in the tabernacle system. One John chapter number one, verse number eight. One John chapter number one. Verse 8. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins. Excuse me. And to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Let me read that again. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just 
to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That, folks, is the labor of the Old Testament. That place, that basin of water, again, water, and tied in with the washing of water by the word. This place of sanctification. And John writes and he says that we have sinned. Of course we have sinned. We walk in truth. We know that we have sin lying within us. He'll go on and talk about the flesh and the spirit but later on. But he's honing in on this fact that actually we need to deal with the practice of sin in our life. All of us. The penalty of sin. That's not what he's talking about. It's done. But the practice of sin needs dealt with. How do we do it? We confess our sins and then he's faithful and just to forgive us and to do what? Cleanse us, wash us, clean us. That we might then go into fellowship with him. Relationship secure at the altar of sacrifice. Fellowship preparation in the place of sanctification. And then that will lead us, when we get there in a couple of weeks' time, we now enter into the holy place where we're going to deal with that fellowship with God, the sweet light of God, the bread of God, and then that praise that goes to God. But before that, we need to have clean hands and clean feet. So what I want to say in, in closing, and we're done, is that an extension from this morning's message where we deal with our glorious walk and how I said that our walk is our witness, it's also worship. And how we walk will determine our witness, whether it's positive or negative, and it will also determine who we really worship. You see, for the priest of the Old Testament, that wanted to get as close to the presence of God as they could, they knew it was essential that their hands and their feet were clean before they went in there. If not, they faced death. For us believers, we have to guard our walk from the dirt of the world and our own sin nature. And to do that, we need to be washed by the water of the word The truth, sanctify them through thy truth, thy word is truth. You understand why Jesus said to the Jewish audience, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. We can come unto the Father because we've come to him. But we have to make sure, saints, that our hands and our feet are clean by the washing of the water of the word. Let's pray.